0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Ontario announces a program for paid sick days. With the federal government indicating their openness to double payments through their program, we are stepping up to fill these gaps. We are the first in the country to double payments for the federal sick days program. With this new additional provincial funding, workers could now
1: receive a total of $1,000 a week for four weeks.
0: Hundreds of travelers arriving in Canada test positive for COVID variants.
1: I have asked uh, our officials uh, to look carefully at, for example, what uh, the UK has done uh, very recently on suspending flights from India, uh, what uh, more can and should be done to ensure uh, that we are not getting cases uh, in uh, from overseas.
0: And the Conservatives push for more investigation into the allegations against Jonathan Vance. In
1: 2014, the
0: Prime Minister said this, I'm aware of how difficult it is for people to come forward. I believe strongly that those of us in positions of authority have a duty to act upon allegations of this nature. It's Thursday, April 29th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us today. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about the Ontario government's plans to put in place sick days for workers. This is uh, something that has been discussed a lot across the country, and in particular in Ontario over the last couple of weeks. Um, people have been saying since the beginning of the pandemic that this was necessary, and there are still there is still criticism of the plan that was introduced by the Ontario government. What do you make of it, and uh, and how it, it sort of ties into? The discussion the Ontario government was having largely through the public uh, with the federal government about this?
2: Well my initial reaction is that it's a year too late. I mean I think it's a positive move but but it should have been done a year ago. You know the federal government brought in this Canada recovery sickness benefits last year. Uh, The provinces were quite happy to to piggyback on that and and not do any more. the, The Ford government in particular because when it came to power, it abolished paid sick leave days. So ideologically, it was it was opposed to them. It didn't want to do any more until the third wave hit, and then it became clear that that uh, COVID was spreading in workplaces and that people were not taking advantage of this federal scheme. Uh, uh, the shortcomings of it were were pretty clear. It it, it doesn't pay an awful lot. It's about four hundred and fifty dollars a week after tax, and you have to apply for it. There are eligibility requirements. You have to be sick for half a week. You have to have earned $5,000 in the, in the prior year. And it takes a while. There's a time lag between applying for it and getting getting your money. So a worker waking up in the morning with symptoms is, I suspect, very tempted just to go to work. Because uh, otherwise you're having to do the mental math about, well, can I afford to take Time off? Can I? Uh, how long is it going to be before the cheque arrives so that I can pay my rent, groceries, etc.? You know, the, the federal government had anticipated that they would, they would spend five billion dollars over two years on this program. Um, in the budget, they downgraded that to seven hundred and thirty-eight million dollars, and currently we're at about, about four hundred and thirty million dollars. So clearly, the federal program was not all it was cracked up to be. The provinces have. Belatedly, I come around to the idea that, that it needs to be reformed in some way, and Ford's government had said it wanted the amount doubled and that he would even pay for the top-up. The federal government replied that they wanted the, the Ford government and every provincial government to mandate sick days, sick leave days permanently. So this was not just a COVID-related program. It, permanently going forward. There would be eight sick leave days in Ontario, The upshot of it all is that the federal government and the provincial government are finger-pointing at one another and workers are still going to work sick. And I think most Canadians would just just shake their head at this and think, why can't we have had a a, a simple solution a year ago? The way that the government of Yukon did in the the territory, anybody who woke up feeling sick, continues to get their wages paid, the employer would then be reimbursed by territorial government, right, and that's essentially the the, the the manner of the plan that's going to take place in, in Ontario, although it's uh, limited to, I think, three sick days. It's just one of those intergovernmental spats that I don't think taxpayers can get their head around, and they just don't understand why politicians can't sure. act in the best interests of citizens.
0: All right, let's turn to the latest data that we've seen from the Public Health Agency of Canada that shows that between February 22nd and April 22nd, a two-month period, 557 international air travelers into Canada tested positive for what's called a variant of concern, a variant of the coronavirus. Um, some of those uh, they, th- th- those people came from different places um and had different variants. There are different strains that have been identified in different parts of the world. Um, and and obviously this is at the heart of why flights from certain parts of the world were cancelled to Canada recently, but it does raise, I think for a lot of people, concerns about the risks associated with these variants.
2: Right, and again, I think it's the same story in essence, in that, uh, you know, these, these figures show that between February 22nd and April 22nd, 557 international air travels tested positive for for variants of concern. Prior to January 7th we weren't requiring people to test at all. Whereas in other jurisdictions in Australia a year before we started requiring tests and started introducing hotel, uh, hotel quarantines Australians were already doing that a year ahead of us. So the spread of variants and the spread of COVID, original COVID in the first place, and latterly variants of concern just didn't happen there. And yet it took us a year to get to the point where we were really closing those loopholes in the border. And I think that the federal government has to wear that. And I've been writing about this that, that subject this week because we've seen federal government ministers coming out and saying, well, travel's not really a concern. When you look at the overall COVID picture, less than two percent of cases are travel related and in fact in april it was only 0.4 percent of cases well that may well be the case if your narrow interpretation of travel related is somebody coming off a plane and testing positive which we weren't even doing until january 7th but clearly those people were getting into the community and then spreading it and the, the Case study I cited was the Roberta House long-term care home in Barrie, Ontario, where 71 people died. That outbreak originated in somebody getting off a plane with the, the UK variant, the B117 variant, and spread to somebody who worked in that care home, and then it went like wildfire through, and 220, cases, 220 people in the, in the long-term care home got sick. And 71 died. When it was classified by the local health unit, it wasn't, none of those cases were classified as travel-related, yet they were clearly all travel-related, and yet it allows the government to say travel-related cases are not a big issue. Well, I think that that is just having fun with numbers and the government's not fun. Fun's not the right word, but it, it's not a fair reflection of what has happened. But it allows the government to get off the hook and say there's nothing to see here. And I I do think that uh, we have been very slow to close the border in the same way that we were very slow to introduce paid sick leave. Both of those Hmm. uh, policy shortcomings have resulted in people dying.
0: Yeah. All right. Finally, John, uh, let's talk about uh, the allegations against Jonathan Vance and the opposition's continued requests to try to understand Who knew what and when the Conservatives are are calling for the Prime Minister to allow Katie Telford, his chief of staff, to testify before a committee. They're obviously trying to keep this alive within the committee structure. The Liberals are are trying to shut it down and, and, and basically let the military... Yeah, is the military's investigation continue? Um, what do you think about about where this is going? And is there is there still life politically to this story, or is it just an in, really a, a, an investigation that has to happen within the Canadian Armed Forces?
2: Well, I think this government has made such a song and dance about being the feminist government and the feminist prime minister, yet apparently turning a blind eye to to what it probably knew was happening at the very top of the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, I think this is somewhat of a fishing expedition on the part of the Conservatives. But they were fishing when they went to... uh, They they called Elder Marquez to testify last week. And clearly, they caught some fish because he was... uh, He revealed that he had been keeping Katie Telford in the loop. Now, you know, the key testimony from him was that... um, He said, I believe, I was told it was an issue of personal misconduct and his presumption was that it was of a sexual nature. I suspect that Katie Telford was of the same presumption. I mean, this was a a rumour that was going around Ottawa at the time. So I suspect that there was a a vague understanding of the allotage, if not the specific nature of them. So my, my... surmise at the moment is that this will probably not yield anything concrete. Um, You know, Katie Telford may end up saying she had a private conversation with the Prime Minister uh, about her suspicions, but I don't think that there's going to be anything that says, we know for sure that that Jonathan Vance was uh, doing anything untoward, and let's repeat the fact that he denied any allegations of doing anything untoward. But I suspect that there was a sort of vague feeling in the Prime Minister's office, and perhaps with the Prime Minister, that all was not well, and that. But you know, at the end of the day, this was these were allegations that were being handed to the Privy Council Office for them to investigate. Uh, you know, that's the role of the Privy Council Office to investigate the uh, the behaviour of a an Order in Council appointee. So I don't suspect we're going to get. Anywhere too soon, I don't suspect it's going to be conclusive. But from the Conservatives' point of view, why would you not follow the the thread
0: which at the moment leads to Katie Telford? All right, we'll see where it leads. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. I'm pleased to introduce the Ontario COVID-19 Worker Income Protection Benefit. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star asks, who knows how many lives might have been saved with earlier paid sick leave? The Star writes, We'll never know how many illnesses and deaths could have been prevented in Ontario if a comprehensive paid sick leave plan had been in effect from day one of the pandemic. It's reasonable to assume that the third wave, driven largely by workplace outbreaks in so-called hotspot areas, might have been blunted to some extent. All that is on a government that refused for 14 long months to do the right thing. That will be hard for Ontarians to forget, and even harder to forgive. In the Globe and Mail, Rob Carrick considers the effects of the housing boom. Carrick writes, The cost of the rise in housing prices is mounting, particularly for young adults who are being denied access to what used to be the near-universal entitlement of home ownership. Governments and financial regulators have a choice to make, introduce measures to contain price increases in the real estate market, or let housing keep tearing away at the financial fabric of Canadian life. In the Montreal Gazette, Yuan Paul Wu argues guaranteed basic income isn't just about reducing poverty. He writes, At the heart of basic income is the concept of individual freedom and personal dignity, or, more particularly, the means by which individuals can exercise their freedoms. In thinking about a post-COVID economy, it is commonplace to draw analogies to major post-war reforms in employment and health insurance, and social assistance. Basic income could be the major reform of our time, but only if it is grounded in expanding the liberties of citizens in society. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Minister of International Development will be appearing before a parliamentary committee today to discuss the COVAX International Vaccine Initiative.
1: CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, International Development Minister Karina Gould will appear before the Foreign Affairs Committee this afternoon to field MPs' questions on Canada's participation in the COVAX initiative. That is the international funding program aimed at helping lower-income countries get access to life-saving COVID-19 vaccines. Canada has contributed $325 million to the fund to help procure vaccines for less fortunate countries. But at the same time, a few weeks ago, Canada was one of the few richer countries to take delivery of doses of vaccine from COVAX, receiving more than 300,000 doses. We are scheduled to receive a total of almost 1.6 million doses from COVAX, Now, although contributing countries like Canada are allowed to receive a share of COVAX vaccines under the program, the Trudeau government has been criticized by humanitarians, aid workers and opposition parties for having done so. Minister Gould maintains that the program is working well and Canada has nothing to apologize for. So, Mark, it will be interesting to see what kind of a reception and what kind of questions she faces at the committee this afternoon. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will host
0: a call with provincial and territorial premiers, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will hold a news conference on the Conservative Opposition Day motion. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will hold a news conference after speaking at the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association's virtual National Congress on Housing and Homelessness. Green Party of Canada leader Annamie Paul will hold a news conference to speak about the COVID-19 situation and the long-term care crisis in Ontario. Public Safety Minister Bill Blair will speak with the media about budget measures to support small and medium-sized businesses through the COVID-19 pandemic. Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will discuss budget measures, including the creation of a new regional development agency dedicated to British Columbia. Labor Minister Philomena Tassi will attend an infrastructure event in Hamilton, Ontario. Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan will hold a virtual announcement to highlight budget support for small and medium sized businesses, including Canada's wine sector. And Innovation Minister Francois Philippe Champagne will meet virtually with executives from SB Technologies and their partners at the Institut Quantique of the University of Sherbrooke. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April 29th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.